This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about the news business, how much it has changed, and how some things never change. And we're talking about it with someone who's been in the business for a very long time, Carl Bernstein. You probably know that name as one half of the investigative team that broke the Watergate scandal, which eventually led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. It is, without a doubt, the best-known journalism story out there, partially because it was dramatic enough to fuel a best-selling book and hit film, but also because it changed the course of American history. In newsrooms, we talk about impact a lot. And what Bernstein and his reporting partner Bob Woodward did at the Washington Post in the early 70s was high impact. None of that is news to you, I'm sure, but that isn't the story that Bernstein is telling in this interview from the 2022 Crosscut Festival. Instead, he's telling the story of his earliest days in a newsroom at the Washington Star in the early 60s. This is the story before the story. And it's the subject of Bernstein's recent memoir, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. It's also a jumping-off point here in this interview with University of Washington Associate Professor Matthew Powers to talk about the evolution of the journalism industry and the public's regard for the work that we do in newsrooms. It's also the launching point for a few stem winders from the journalism legend, The Guy Likes to Tell a Story. This conversation and all other conversations on the power and policy track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Amazon, which would like to share the following message. Amazon strives to be Earth's most customer-centric company, Earth's best employer, and Earth's safest place to work. Learn more at aboutamazon.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Carl Bernstein, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Good to be with you. So you've had an incredibly storied career in journalism that spans decades. So why did you choose to focus on your first five years in the profession for this book? Well, first, let me say a little bit more about what the book is. It's about this kid uh, who at age 16 has uh, one, one foot in the juvenile court, one foot at the pool hall, and maybe a toe or two in the classroom, and is lucky enough, uh, talk about luck, to, to basically get the best seat in the country at age 16 to go to work for what's really the best afternoon paper in America in the nation's capital, and to have these extraordinary opportunities over the next five years to learn to be a reporter, to learn the newspaper trade, to understand the makings of politics in the capital of the United States, uh, to come to all sorts of understandings about the notion of the truth, And so everything I know really about journalism and about reporting has its roots in this extraordinary period of my life, taught by the greatest reporters of their time. And and so I've always wanted to write about it. 
because also it's the most joyous period of my life, if you can imagine such a thing. It, it's a kind of un, unadulterated joy. There's pain in it uh, from certain things that happened along the way where, where I, I get tripped up or uh, personally in, 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 uh, in my life something would happen. But it's an extraordinary experience. And, and then the book never has the word Watergate in it. It's, it's not written by the old man looking back. It's written in the voice of really this kid around the age of 20 or 21 telling this story. And But then when I had written a draft of it, I began to see, oh, this is almost a prequel to All the President's Men. The two fit together inextricably. Because, and there's a quote from Bob Woodward on, on, on the back of the book, and, and I won't go into the, where he goes overboard and extolling <laughs> uh, me, a little, a little too generous, I'd say. But, but Woodward says, he talks about my teaching myself or being taught the genius of perpetual engagement that led us to Watergate, watching, looking, questioning, and overwhelming the moment. His rules go anywhere, listen hard, push and push some more are to this day the touchstone in investigative reporting. And we can talk a little bit about that because, yes, I brought that to the Washington Post when I, when I went to work there in, in 1966. Uh, but at the same time, in Watergate, you can see all kinds of things that we did that have their roots in this book and what, what I learned at the star. What, what are you thinking of in terms of uh, some of the, the stuff that's in there? Um, well, first thing, the basics that, that Bob talks about there, about going out of the office and knocking on doors. I mean, this was not a place where, where reported uh, consisted of get on the telephone and make a couple calls and write your story. And there's no internet, of course. So you, you have to do things longhand, as it were. But, but really also the so-called two-source rule that we had uh, in Watergate, where it, if the, uh, the information was significant, we had to have it from at least two sources. We had that at the star. It wasn't called the two-source rule, but you had to have multiple sources to make sure the story was pinned down. The, the whole notion, Bob and I talk a lot about the best obtainable version of the truth. The idea, that's really the fundament of what good reporting is, the best obtainable version of the truth. It comes from a phrase, and we use it, you know, we've used it for 50 years now. It comes from a phrase that, that we had at the star uh, uh, about the, the context of the truth and the idea that, that it's not just a bunch of facts strung together, but there's a contextual element uh, to, to the best obtainable version of the truth. There's a point in this book where, where I say, because it comes from covering civil rights at a very young age and, and lynchings, literally. And, and there comes a point where I say, I learned from these great Southern reporters who were covering civil rights, Southerners themselves, the truth is not neutral. And, and I believe that. And I think that was true in Watergate also. Fairness is one thing. Mm -hmm. But the truth itself, you take the story Bob and I wrote, it finally made some sense out of, out of this break-in, not as an isolated uh, event in 1972, but then we were able to write 
a few months after the break-in that it was part of a vast campaign of political espionage and sabotage run from the White House. That's not neutral at all. That is a statement of what the contextual truth is, but it's anything but neutrality. It, it, and, and in fact, in their so-called denial about that story, um, we didn't give the denial half the story, 50-50 down the middle. We gave the denial what it ought to be in context, a few paragraphs, a chance for them to respond, but not, not to propagate a whole series of, of their misstatements and lies. So one of the things that really stuck out to me as I was reading the book is that not only was it very, very meaningful to you as a youngster getting into journalism, but it was also extremely fun, right? It's just there throughout the book. And I was asking myself as I was reading it, is journalism still that fun for someone that age? Look, I'm 78 years old, Woodward's 79. I think each of us still have some of that joy. When you, you, know, you, you get onto the story, you're in another zone. Reporters love good stories and love to, to get to the truth of things, if they're any good. And uh, so, and yes, I think the joy is still there in the profession, but I think it's a very different profession in many regards. And it needn't be as different as it is because of the basics. This is a book, as is all the president's men. All the president's men, and you see it in the movie, perhaps even more clearly than you do in the book, it's a primer on reporting. Neither is about our personal lives and, and who, who we are going deep into our characters or, or whatever. It's about, both of them are, are about, what's the process here? What's the methodology? How do you get the story? What are the rules, uh, et cetera? And so the joy is in that. And, and, and I think that's when kids are really doing what they need to be doing. I can't imagine they don't feel that joy. Now, <clears throat> you're known, obviously best known for Watergate, but you're also the author of multiple books and numerous long form investigations. So I'm, I'm curious, what's the work besides Watergate that, that you're most, most proud of at this point in your career? I tell you, one of the, the amazing things, this book is caused me, uh, and I don't want to sound grandiose here, uh, has caused me to look at my life differently. There's a continuum over these 62 years since I went to go uh, work at the Star. And, and it all is of a piece, and I, as is my life. Maybe, you know, I didn't understand that until now, but I don't think it came together until this book. It's a bookend. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and what's the constant through there? And in, in my life as well, you know, you fall down along the way, but I now see it as a whole. And that includes books, uh, you know, a biography of Pope John Paul II and his remarkable role in the history of our, of the 20th century and the defeat of communism. He's a pivotal, a pivotal figure with Ronald Reagan, uh, that tale in that book from all of this deep reporting that I and, and Marco Politi, my co-author, did on that book, the memoir of my, this is really a third memoir. If, if you looked at all the president's men as a memoir, it really isn't. 
And then I wrote, the, you know, the next thing, and then we did the final days, which is a kind of long form reporting. It really was different than what came before. And after that, I did a memoir about my family's experience and my experience in the family uh, growing up in a, in a left-wing family. Uh, my parent, and, and during the height of the witch hunts, the McCarthyist witch hunts in America, which very much affected my parents and, and my, my growing up. And I did a biography of Hillary Clinton. At, at a, read that book now. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think it provides some real understanding about her that, that even now becomes more powerful in some ways. And also, I think, in retrospect, those books um, give us some historical perspective that, that may not have been quite so apparent at the time, particularly, for instance, the relationship between Reagan and the Pope. Right. So I'm curious about the question of impact, because your work is set the standard for modern investigative reporting. Um, and, you know, the idea not just that journalists can take on power, but if done right under the right conditions that it might even take down um, power. So I'm curious, what's your sense of like, what impact should investigative reported in investigative journalism aim for? Um, first of all, I get a little wary in terms of looking at quote investigative journalism as a kind of pseudoscience that's a, apart from the, the uh, body of other reporting. Again, it seems to me that, that all good reporting is the best obtainable version of the truth. And, and let me say one other thing, and you see it here in this book, what I learned. What's the most important thing a reporter or a news organization does? It's to decide what is news. Everything is predicated on that. You can't get to the best obtainable version of the truth until you've decided what is news. So in Watergate, uh, we decided the news was this, at the Washington Post was this break-in. The other news organizations didn't think it was news for about three, four months, generally. In Chasing History, you watch these decisions about what is news. You, you watch the kid learning how to handle events and put them together in terms of what is news. And, and so... If you go back to your question about impact, I don't think the, the object of any kind of reporting ought to be impact. The impact comes coincidentally and because of the work. Look at Watergate. I thought in the first few days this story was going to go to the CIA, not to the, to the White House. The preconceived notion, you, you have to have some picture of where you're going, but then you you go out, as you see the kid doing here, and, and he becomes just amazed at what he's finding out. That gets back to the joy of it as well. But also, how is it that we have impact? We have impact because we do this through this methodology. And it doesn't matter if you're covering sports or city hall or business. It's the same deal. At the beginning of this book, First of all, you know, I, I see the newsroom for the first time. I hear the ching and clatter of the typewriters right after I've interviewed for a job at the Star. And, and the guy who's going to hire me eventually walks me down the middle aisle where all the reporters' desks are. And, and, 
and he pulls a paper. The presses are going underneath me, and I can feel the rumble of the presses. And, and a copy boy with, with papers stacked up in a little wagon uh, comes by, and, and this guy I'm with pulls off one of the papers, hands it to me, and it's still warm from coming right off the press. And I knew at that moment, I say it here, I knew I wanted to be a newspaper man. And uh, the head copy boy took me down that same aisle and he wanted to show me how the place worked and who worked there. And there were three desks with no one sitting there. And he took me to each one. But at first he, he addressed me as if these three desks were almost a unit. And not coincidentally, all three desks were those of women reporters, three Pulitzer winners. The first desk was that of Mary Lou Werner, who became a great mentor to me. She had won the Pulitzer the previous year for her coverage of massive resistance to integration of schools in Virginia. The second was another Pulitzer winner, Miriam Ottenberg, who had been the first real reporter in the newsroom, woman reporter, when she went to work there in 1939. She had won the Pulitzer that year that I went to work there for an investigative, she was an investigative reporter for a, a, a series about used car, you know, s scams, uh, all kinds of, um, Ways of Cheating People, a great, great series that she had written. And the third woman whose desk he showed me was Mary McGurry, the, probably the greatest prose stylist in Washington, uh, in Washington uh, of the second part of the 20th century and, and into the 21st when she went to work at the Washington Post. So that's what you see in, the, in, in this book. And you, you see the learning, and you see the joy of the experience. What's the thing people get wrong the most that the public misunderstands or misremembers about Watergate? I think, first of all, I think the public is, is, is a very tricky phrase because we have a different culture than we had at the time of Watergate, including, and I, and I think one of the things we do worse in journalism is, and, and it helps both explain some of the polarization as well as what, uh, how we've missed the big story over the last 20, 25 years. And that is the change in the culture of our country. And we look at journalism, politics as apart from this larger culture. It's a big, big mistake. I can't put a metric on this, but the number of people today who are looking for the best obtainable version of the truth in what they read and see and in news is infinitely smaller than it was at the time of Watergate. So what do I see as the biggest difference? It's that, that people are looking for news and information that fits there and, and, and buttresses their already held political, religious, ideological beliefs instead of being open to the best obtainable version of the truth. So the difference in perception of Watergate then and now is that most people in the country unquestionably were open to the best obtainable version of the truth, including 
the leadership of the Republican Party, the Republican Party in Congress, people who voted Republican understood that Nixon was a criminal president and had to be removed from office. The final shove, it made him resign. Barry Goldwater, the great conservative, 1964 nominee of his party for president of the United States, he went with a group of Republican leaders. And you see it in the final days where we found out about this. Went to the White House and they sat around with Nixon. And Nixon was sitting there thinking, well, how many votes do I have in the Senate to not be convicted? Goldwater looks at him and said, Mr. President, uh, right now you might have four and you don't have mine. That was the end of it. Imagine, had Mitch McConnell done that, that would have been the end of, of Donald Trump. And so another difference is we now have a craven Republican Party enthralled and afraid of the first seditious president in the history of the United States. And make no mistake, look at what we've learned about January 6th and that investigation in the House. They've got the goods. They have it. And, and so we're getting to have the best obtainable version of the truth about not just what happened January 6th, not just about and what is sedition. It's about promoting insurrection against the government. Trump staged a coup. The only seditious president we've ever had in this country was Jefferson Davis, and he was the president of the Confederacy. Never, despite all the awful things presidents have done, including Nixon, nothing like this, nothing like a seditious president. So the difference in Watergate and the public perception, to go back to your question, the mistake now is there are too many people now who believe that Watergate was some kind of left-wing plot against Nixon. Not too many, but more than at the time, I, I think. I think there is a real recognition that has stayed because partly of the journalism that was done on Nixon, not just ours, and the report of the, uh, of the Watergate committee and the fact that Republicans did this, that Nixon was a criminal president, unlike any other until this. Yeah. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. You're talking a lot about things that are kind of worrisome about the present. I wonder what's most exciting to you about the state of journalism today? I think that there is an awareness in journalism today all over the world that democracy is in trouble and that gradually news organizations in countries all over the world, including this one where democracy is in trouble, look what we're in the midst of 
something unthinkable, a ground war in Europe by one of the two nuclear or one of the nuclear superpowers, a genocidal war in Europe begun by, let's not even characterize his psychological state, Putin, and, and what his objectives are. That's part, look, we were going to have, we won the Cold War, supposedly, and we were going to have this great peace dividend, and there was going to be, democracy was going to triumph, and we, our triumphalism was perhaps part of the problem, and democracy was going to spread its wings like an eagle and, and come all to countries all over the globe. What happened? The pendulum has swung the other way. Even in Europe, even in this country, we have one of our two parties that no longer is wedded to democratic ideals. A party that doesn't want people certain people to vote in this country and tries to suppress the right to vote, the most basic element of a democracy. Look at what's happening in the French election, no matter who wins. A neo-fascist, that's putting it mildly, candidate who has captured the imagination of the French people. Look at the government in Hungary. Look at Miramar. Look all over the world. Look at the Arab Spring, which lasted not even till fall. So the pendulum has swung against democracy. And so you have great and brave reporters, even in Russia, where they've been killed. To me, the hopeful thing is that more and more, and in this country and other countries, there is a recognition. Poland, which right now has, has stood with the West against this genocidal butcher. But look where Poland was going and where its leaders and its president have been, not toward democracy, the opposite. So I think this is the great story of our time and that uh, it's becoming understood. What is news? Back to what I started this with. Now, that's one of the things I'm encouraged by. Um, and I think I'm encouraged by new kinds of news entities, nonprofits, like ProPublica, all, all over, again, all over the world, the Panama Papers, that, that not traditional news organizations that are producing great, great work. And, and uh, obviously, economically, it, it's been a disastrous period for traditional news organizations. Those are that put out newspapers and magazines it certainly has not been a disaster for television networks and cable, et cetera, et cetera. But no, I, I'm, I think, though, at the same time that uh, fake news, real fake news, such as practiced by, by Fox News and, and other, quote, news organizations. So I think there's a lot of room to be discouraged as well as some really bright spots and, uh, and we still have really great reporting done by the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, a good number of, of news organizations, uh, CNN, uh, do some really, really great reporting 
day in, day out. Well, looking at the clock, unfortunately, Carl, I think we're out of time. It's been fascinating talking with you today, and I appreciate you joining us at the Crosscut Festival this year. Well, it's, it's going to be fun, and uh, I hope you know people read this book and have fun with it as well as I think it helps explain some of the things you've been asking about. Well, how do we get from here to there? And you see the link of what was happening historically and in the life of this, this kid uh, who got himself, because of these wonderful people, out of the pool hall and out of the juvenile court. <laughs> and that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Carl and Matthew for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. The event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you'd like to attend a future CrossCut event like this one, go to crosscut.com events. Also, if you'd like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.